I'm Isatu. I'm Claire. I'm Duha. I'm Hiba. We are high school historians at New York Historical Society. So today we're going to be talking about voter suppression and the ways it has plagued our country since its very founding. We'll go through some different types of voter suppression, talk about organizations that work to end it, and also make connections from past forms of voter suppression to modern ones. Before that, picture this. It's 1857, New York City. You're going to vote, or most likely, you're not going to vote, since very few people could actually vote in 1857. Anyway, you're there, looking at your ballot with the name of your candidate written on it, and you see it, a ballot box. But it's different from all the ballot boxes you've seen before. Used to these big, austere wooden boxes, boxes that have recently come under fire due to allegations of ballot box stuffing or false votes were stuffed in through the use of a false wooden bottom. However, this ballot box is different. You first notice that it's a sphere with intricate metalworking on the top and bottom. But most importantly, the sphere is made of glass. It's see-through. In order for you to, quote, see every ballot which is put in, see all the ballots that are in, and see them taken out, end quote. Now that's actually a quote, yeah like I said, quote, from this guy, Samuel Jolie. He made the ballot box that you're staring at. Maybe you're holding up the line. Maybe public people are yelling at you or you're looking at it. Anyways, this transparent ballot box is so important because it's a visual symbol for transparency in the voting process. It shows that even back in 1857, there, were, there, were, there was corruption in the process and not everyone's vote, ignoring the fact that not everyone could vote. Was, count, was counted equally. It's a cool example of how in history, the need for transparency in the voting process was addressed and it connects to modern day examples of voter suppression and corruption and ways that, and things that people have done to try to fix it. So now we're going to be jumping ahead in the future, away from 1857. And we're going to ask my friend, we're gonna to talk to my friend Kiba, an expert in her field, about voter suppression during a time that you wouldn't really associate with the suppression of votes, the women's suffrage movement. Hi, Heba. So when I think of the suffrage movement, I generally think of it as a time when everyone's votes were finally being counted, like an increase of voting rights, not a voter suppression. So why are you talking about it here today? Hello there. This may be hard to believe, but many women, mainly women of color, could not vote because the 19th Amendment was largely meant for white women. I found an interesting document called Vote for Women Will Improve the Electorate, written in 1912 and found in the New York Historical Society, that may help you understand why this was the case and how suffrage, white suffrage leaders tried to appeal to the audience and um, the reasons they used to justify this prejudice towards minorities. So this document is basically appealing for suffrage, but just for white women? Yeah, exactly. So the poster gives three reasons as to why giving suffrage to only white women will improve the electorate. The first reason is that it will increase white, the white majority. 
So it depicts bar graphs of the number of white, minority, and black men and women uh, citizens of voting age. So I'm looking at the document right now and seeing the graphs, it's pretty clear that giving white women the right to vote will more than double the white majority since the number of white voters increases from 11 to 23 million, which is much higher than the roughly 15 million black and foreign born voters. Yep, exactly. So essentially the authors thought that white women should get suffrage in order to uphold white supremacy? Yeah, and exactly, um, and Carrie Chapman Catt uh, who was later the National American Woman Suffrage Association's um, said who led a meeting in it um, actually voiced a sentiment in 1894 when she discussed the dangers that quote lie in the slums possessed by the males in the of the city and the ignorant foreign vote end quote. So she expressed similar sentiments to those displayed in the poster and instead proposed to cut off the votes to the slums and instead give the vote to white women. Well, that's terrible. So I can assume that they were trying to appeal to white people or white lawmakers through these racist sentiments. I mean, maybe I guess they also generally wanted to convey a societal message of racial superiority or thought that making these remarks would help them gain support. Yeah, and specifically, they were trying to appeal to white senators who were obviously the deciding factor in whether or not they would get suffrage. Oh, yeah, okay, that, that makes sense. So, what else does the poster say? Wasn't there another reason they thought white women should get the vote? Yeah. The second reason the poster cites is that giving white women suffrage will make the state more law-abiding and moral. The the middle portion of the poster displays prison statistics of the number of white, foreign-born, and black voters based on gender. So, I see here that the bar graphs emphasize that white women make up the smallest portion of prisoners, while black men and white men ironically who ironically do have the right to vote make up the largest portion so i guess it's trying to say that white women were lawful and righteous citizens who rarely committed crimes and should be given suffrage yeah i think that um white suffragists wanted the reviewers to remember all the good that they have accomplished over the past few years when they saw these graphs um and since they did they did um help hospitals and schools and reform labor unions so they argued that they could clean up politics and resist war if they could if they were given suffrage. Hmm. Yeah, but it's really bad that they were essentially painting immigrants and African Americans as unlawful citizens just to get their own suffrage. Exactly. You can see that they were making very contradictory statements because on one hand they were saying that they were very moral and then um, righteous, and then on the other hand they were presenting minorities in this very poor manner. Yeah, no, that's true. So, what's the last reason um, they? So, what's the last reason they think giving white women the vote will quote unquote improve the electorate? The third, the third reason the poster gives is that giving white women suffrage will make the electorate more intelligent. It does this by displaying the portion of male and female teachers and depicts the number of white, minority, and black men who were illiterate but could vote. From the graphs, you can see that there are roughly four times more female teachers than male. Also, on the blurb on the bottom of the third portion, it states that there are one-third more girls than boys in high school. Well, I know the 15th Amendment that was passed in 1870 gave all men the right to vote, regardless of education, I guess. And it was illegal for enslaved people to learn how to read, so black people were likely less educated. Exactly. White suffrage leaders supported the notion of educated suffrage. 
In fact, in 1868, Anthony and Elizabeth Stanton founded the Revolution, which was a paper they published in uh, who they who they published that um, went against the Fifteenth Amendment and instead for quote educated suffrage irrespective of sex or color. So essentially, they didn't want to openly oppose black suffrage and and rather they only demonstrated their support for new state laws like those in Mississippi, for example, that required voters to interpret the state constitution in order to be allowed to vote. So essentially, they used the idea of educated suffrage to support why they should get suffrage um, and voting rights and to supplement their previous point on white supremacy by explaining why uneducated minorities should not get voting rights. Whoa, this poster has really shown me that the suffrage movement was very different and much more negative than I thought it was. Well, I don't want to undermine their accomplishment. Their valiant efforts definitely allowed us to take a step in the right direction by giving at least some women suffrage. Though it would have been better if all women got suffrage when the 19th Amendment was passed, their efforts did contribute in some way, directly or indirectly, to all women getting suffrage. Yeah, they definitely introduced the idea that women were capable, educated citizens who had the necessary knowledge to vote. And you may be surprised to learn that some suffrage leaders did support universal suffrage at one point. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Stanton, who later became the NAWSA's most influential leaders, initially founded the American Equal Rights Association, ERA, with Frederick Douglass and other minority activists in 1866. They aimed to win voting rights for both white and African-American women, but then they later separated in 1870 and they formed their own suffrage organizations. Oh, wait, 1870, was that because in 1870 the 15th Amendment was passed? Maybe white leaders were mad because it gave black men the right to vote, and white women had been fighting for the same rights for over a century, but without success. Yeah, exactly, that was definitely one of their points. Also, suffrage leaders like Anthony and Stanton believed that when asking for universal suffrage, that would be too outrageous, and that white women should be given preference, while minority activists also wanted to advocate for racial equality. So these conflicting beliefs at the heated fights and eventually the association was dissolved just a few years after it was founded. So even though they supported universal suffrage at first, they completely changed their stance to show that they were on, I guess, the same team as other white supremacists to increase their own chances of getting suffrage. Yeah, exactly. That was their mindset. Um, but like I said, they did what they thought had to be done to get suffrage. Of course, their, their actions were very wrongful. But it, they could be seen as acts of desperation rather than based on racist sentiments. Okay, so now we'll, uh, that's all for this document. Now we'll turn our attention to the Women in, Mar- Women's March interactive map found in the New York Historical Society, in which uh, we can read about and visually see who was left out of the 19th Amendment as a result of these discriminatory sentiments. For instance, the map shows that. Native Americans could not vote until 1924 because they were not even considered naturalized citizens of the U.S., even though their ancestry was rooted in America. Oh yeah, I also see here that Chinese Americans couldn't vote until 1943 because of various xenophobic acts like the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1812, which banned many Chinese Americans from entering the U.S., let alone becoming citizens or voting. Yeah, and then if you continue scrolling through, you see that African Americans could not vote until 1965, the year that the Voting Rights Act was passed. Also, looking at the map, um, now I see that 
Many Hispanic and Latino people had to wait until 1975 when President Ford added an extension to the Voting Rights Act, which ended discrimination against language minorities. 1975? That, that was so recent. Yes, this information is very enlightening to many. But looking at one historical document and an interactive, you were able to dispel the misconception that the 19th Amendment secured suffrage for all women. Um, and you were able to explore why suffrage leaders took discriminatory stances and the impact it had on minorities and especially women from those communities. You know, this kind of reminds me of the ballot box from before. It really shows how we need to have transparency around movements and voting legislation, especially about ones that happened in the past, so we can learn about who really had the right to vote and when and what these movements really stood for. You also made it super clear, hot clear, get it? Like glass, which is what the ballot box is made out. Never mind. Okay, you made it clear that there always needs to be changes in the voting process to make it more equitable, like when we moved from wooden to glass ballot boxes, or when laws were passed later that actually gave people of color the right to vote. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us here today, Heba. Thank you for having me. See you later. Bye! Okay, so now we're moving on to another expert, Isatu, who will be telling us about how civil rights activists fought against discriminatory voter registration in Mississippi during the 1964 federal election. It's great to meet with you. So right now we're both looking at this yellow pin. What does this have to do with voting and the civil rights movement? Signed Federal Registrator to Sunflower, Mississippi, now MFDP. This is the loud message sent through the yellow button. The emergency in this line was necessary because many black citizen voting access depended on it. This yellow button was used by the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Registrator during for presidential election. African-American leaders such as Fannie Lou Hamer decided to found the MFDP in order to register black voters in Mississippi. So was the MFDP like a more equitable democratic party? Yes, it was more like a civil rights movement founded to challenge the racist Mississippi Democratic Party. So how did the MFDP try to do this? So, during the National Convention of 1964, the MFDP decided to challenge the seating of the regular Democratic Party at the National Convention. But President Lyndon Johnson refused to seat the MFDP delegate for fear of losing the support of his fellow Democrats. Once again, African-American right was neglected for political purposes. But later on, the convention, a compromise was announced by the Attorney General, Mr. Walter. He proposed two seats for the MFDP delegate and full seating of the so-called regular Democratic Party. However, the MFDP delegate refused the offer and walked out of the room. Why did they refuse the offer? So the delegate decided to refuse the offer because two seats was not enough to represent the black community in the, in the state of Mississippi. Oh, yeah, of course. So as the MFDP element worked out, finally Hammer got up and had her most inspiring speech of her career as a voting rights activist. So who was Fannie Lou Hamer again? 
So Fannie Lou Hamer was a woman and voting rights activist. She was the co-founder of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, mostly famous for her inspiring speech at the convention and disco. I am sick and tired of being sick and tired, Fannie Lou Hamer. Oh, I've heard that quote before. Um, so what else did you say in her speech? And why was the speech so important? So one of the quotes that stood out, stood out to me when reading this speech was, and I quote, he said, then if you go down and withdraw, you will still, you will still might have to leave because we are not ready for that in Mississippi. This was the white man Fannie Lou Hamer worked for 18 years, telling her to leave his property where she was married and raised her children just because she tried to vote. Whoa, that's awful. So here's another quote. On the 10th of September 1962, 16 bullets were fired into the home of Mr. Robert Tucker. For me, that same night, two girls were shot in Redleville, Mississippi. Then before Fannie Hammer finishes her speech, President Lyndon B. Johnson decided to cut her off by starting his own speech at the White House. He made it seem like he was going to announce his vice president in order to get the attention of everyone and make people forget about what Fannie Lou was saying. Whoa, so the president just cut her off in the middle of her speech? That's crazy. I can't believe it. So anyway, why in the end was the speech so important? So this this speech was very important because it helped to publicize the violence and injustice black citizens were facing in Mississippi and the South. The MFDP and Fannie Lou played a big role in the passing of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So what happened after this? Um, how eventually did this help people of color in Mississippi? So after the National Convention, the MFDP action resulted in the National Party adopting new policies. The new policy banned sitting delegation that had been chosen to racial discrimination. After the passage of 19, after the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the number of registered Black voters in Mississippi grew. The regular party stopped discriminating against Blacks, and the MFDP merged into the regular party. And many MFDP activists became party leaders. That's such an inspiring story. I, that's that's really great. Thank you so much. And it really relates to the theme of transparency and the ballot box because if you can really see what people are going through in the way Fannie Lou Hamer explained in her speech and see the corruption going on, like when Lyndon Johnson cut her off, we can work for change in the country. Yes. Absolutely. So, yeah. So thank you, Isatu, again for this amazing story. Um, so now we're going to be going into the future, to the present, to our final expert, Duha, who will be talking to us more about the presence of voter suppression in modern day and other contemporary issues. So great to hear you. So I guess today you're here to tell us about the ways that voter suppression unfortunately still exists today. Yeah, so although these issues of suppression in the past were rather directly caused by legal barriers such as state laws and constitutional approval, they actually ended up stopping once the Voting Rights Act in 1965 was passed. So this act basically um, made racial 
religious, and sex discrimination by employers illegal, and it gave the government the power to enforce all laws that were governing civil rights, including segregation of schools and public spaces. Wow, that's amazing. So how did they do this? Like, What led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act? So basically, it started out on March 6, 7, 1965 with Bloody Sunday, which was an event, which was like an event where troopers attacked protesters on Edmund Bridge and Selma. So the violence and tear gas that were used by the Alabama state troopers and mob of citizens was actually reported in newspapers and broadcast on national television for everybody to see. But then the citizens from around the country were actually really shocked by the way that the marchers were abused, and a lot of them wrote to the government to express their outrage. So in response to this event, um, President Johnson actually called for the voting rights legislation uh, for the writing of the uh, Voting Rights Act. Huh. Yeah, that's such a terrible event, but I mean, it seems like kind of there's a pattern here. Yeah, and what is that pattern, Claire? Well, people, like, face brutality in, like, tons of many forms when fighting for something that's just, like, equal rights. But there has to be, like, some sort of big event where marginalized people have to pay the price of, like, being injured and hurt in order just to gain equality. Like, there's some giant event, and that's the only way that the public pays attention. Tell me about it, like, the extent to which these situations have to escalate in order to be solved is actually shocking because... It's not like it's something that they don't deserve. This is a this is a right. And at the same time, it's like problems never end up getting solved. And it just feels like we are going in circles. And actually, a prime example of this actually is how in 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court swept away a key provision of this landmark civil rights law in, in the case of Shelby County versus Holder. Oh, no. How, how did they do that? So basically, the purpose of this case was to essentially challenge uh, Section 4B of the Voting Rights Act. So this section actually required that certain states with a, with a history of voter discrimination um, had to obtain like federal approval of any changes in voting laws. And the outcome of uh, this case was actually 5 to 4, which concluded by saying that Section 4B and 5 was unconstitutional because of the fact that the original data is 40 years old and apparently racial discrimination does not happen anymore. So thank you, white men. So I guess that means that they just took away the accountability of the states that already had the most potential toward discrimination. So what, what happened after that? Well, my dear Claire, referring back to the analogy of the ballot box, let's just say that things were not really capable of being that transparent anymore. I'd rather say that the answer to the question of whether or not there is voter transparency in this country is that simply we are looking through opaque, opaque glass. Glass. Oh my god, I can't pronounce anything. <laughs> well, thank you for bringing it back to the ballot box. Yeah, you know, I love that. But So can you elaborate on what you're saying? Well, now that some states aren't monitored anymore, they have the chance to, they have the chance to dilly-dally with voter turnout by enacting voting restrictions. And one of the ways that the states are able to enact voting restrictions are through the mandation of picture IDs. So in theory, this shouldn't be an issue because most adults have some sort of federal identification, right? But in reality, a large number of Americans don't have any form of it. Like actually, according to the Brennan Center, 25% of black voting age citizens in the US 
don't have a form of photo ID, as opposed to only 8% of the white voting age citizens that don't. Do you see the difference here? Oh, wow. Yeah, no, it seems like... I mean, how did, how, how did they justify this if the racial disparities are so clear? Well, it's quite ironic. Um, these voter ID laws were actually defended by a reference to racially neutral need to defend the integrity of the elections. So this, specifically, the defenders claimed that voter ID laws are needed to combat uh, the issue of voter impersonation fraud. But studies have shown that voter impersonation fraud is actually very rare. And the restrictions on the type of ID that are also are also specifically designed to disenfranchise specific type, types of voters, a.k.a. Republic ver- Republicans versus Democrats. Um, an example of this is like um, in Texas where a handgun license is actually an acceptable form of ID, but a student ID from a state university majority Democrat isn't. And actually more of half of, the uni- of students at the University of Texas are, non- are non-white, while more than 80% of people who have gun licenses are white. That's terrible. Oh, it just all seems so overwhelming. Yeah, and only because the majority of people aren't aware of this, whether it's the marginalized or the privileged. Well, I'm unfortunately assuming that the answer to this question is yes, but are there any more ways that voters of colors are disenfranchised or discriminated against? Well, we might not realize it, but actually in certain in recent years, uh, many states actually have reduced the number of polling places, especially in low-income and minority neighborhoods. So if you are Black or Latino in this nation, you are going to stand in line to vote about 45% longer than you are a white, a white voter. Whereas white voters in white neighborhoods only wait for about an average of seven minutes. Oh, so this might lead people to think that voter turnout is like lower for in communities of color than for white voters in white communities. But really, that's just because the fact that people of color don't get the chance to vote. Exactly. And because of the fact that voting is not as emphasized in their communities as much as it, as much as it is in other ones. That's another reason. Yeah, and from living in New York, like we already know how separated different communities are and like how big of a problem that is. Exactly. And well, that's obviously because of redlining, but that's a whole other story. But yes, um, a key factor to voting suppression is redlining. And I think, but I think genuinely things are starting to change or at least pivot towards a positive direction in some way. Well, that's great. How? Well, I'm recalling the presidential 2020 election. So despite the challenges that were caused with the pandemic and all of the barriers that we had to face, the 2020 election actually had the largest increase in voting between the presidential elections that were on record. Um, so actually voter turnout uh, showed de- distinct increases from the 2016 uh, voter turnout. Um, and these increases were actually prominent in Asian American, Latino, Hispanic, and non-college white voters. Oh, wait, do you know why this spiked? Well, the social media and the activism of young adults, including the youth, was actually a very big factor regarding this turnout, um, given the fact that Trump's presidency was actually controversial in itself. I think a lot of people wanted to either make an effort towards either keeping him or leaving him. So to sum it up, basically political polarization is the word that I should be using. Oh, okay. So like what what ways did people take action? 
Well, step one is civic engagement, such as educating yourself and others. And prioritizing the significance of civic participation is actually key. A lot of people were civically engaged within their local community. Are there any organizations that like our listeners can get in touch with if they want to be more civically involved? Well, there is this great organization that I know of called, um, it's in New York City, and it's called YBO. Um, Another one I know of is actually Civic Nation, which is actually a super group that actually (laughs) comprises of many civic engagement initiatives. And they commit to improving democratic engagement by uh, increasing student voter participation rates. Sure that the graduates have a commitment to voting and stay informed after college because so a lot of people can get on the ball and then just fall off. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, both, both those organizations sound amazing. Um, and I guess, like you're saying, like the need to get educated and get involved, it's really like the need for transparency, as seen earlier with the ballot box. Because if we truly see what's going on in our country in regards to voter suppression, we can work to change it. Well... I just want to say thank you so much, Duha, and thank you so much to our other historians, Hiba and Isatu, and thanks as well to you, the listener, for coming with us through our journey, where we learned about different ways voters, especially voters of color, have been oppressed throughout the years, and what has been done, and what we can do now to change that.